Amen. Our reading from God's Holy Word comes from Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I will multiply many signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. And then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, Then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers. And they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret acts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we've heard your word now read in the presence of your people, and we would ask for your spirit to come and attend to this reading and now this exposition of this, your word. Would you come and meet with us? And would you share with us all that you intend for us to know from this word right now? Tilling up the hearts in this room so that we might together receive the seed of the truth of your word and that it might bear much fruit, we pray, in our lives for your glory. Hear this prayer and answer it in Jesus' name. Amen. You've seen here at Cornerstone how things have gotten increasingly tight over the last handful of months, it's a little harder to find space on pews on Sunday morning and even right now having a good number of people in the live stream room upstairs who have graciously, graciously taken one for the team, so to speak, and are up there so that uh, we can be here uh, in this room. What a, what a wonderful thing that is to see God's people even sacrificing space and uh, comforts of where it is they would want to be in order to make space for others. 
There is something of mission in that, isn't there? Whenever it is that we sacrifice for the good of others, we see something of cross-bearing, no matter how small it may seem. In sitting in one room as opposed to another and being before a screen rather than being uh, in person in this room, the fact of the matter is sacrifices are a part of the Christian life, aren't they? And those sacrifices are there to bear fruit. It's the picture of what the Lord has been graciously doing here at the body of Christ at Cornerstone. And even as I note to you in the pastoral notes this morning, if you haven't had a chance to read them, about the fact that your leaders are regularly praying and dialoguing and considering what does it mean for Cornerstone to be faithful to the Lord's call now, given the burgeoning fruit within our midst and the increased growth in our body, and we're welcoming you into that dialogue, and we're welcoming you, first of all, into praying with us three specific prayers that I laid out for you this morning, and would just challenge you on May the 1st, we're May the 1st today, would you be willing to pray those prayers each day through the month of May? Just asking the Lord to lead us a prayer of surrender that we would give our hearts and lives to the Lord, and we would be praying, not my will, but thy will be done. Uh, A prayer that would ask for the unity of the body, that the Lord would protect the sweet fellowship that the Lord has granted to us as leaders and as a fellowship, that we would be one even as Christ has prayed for us to be one, and that the wisdom of the Lord would come. Oh, how we need wisdom in the midst of any exploration of growth or any ministry endeavor Because we always sense in those moments complete inadequacy, don't we? When the Lord has called us to more, then we seem equipped to be able to handle. That may seem in some ways like a bad place or a difficult place to be, but those of you who've walked with the Lord for many years know that that's status quo in the Christian life. God is about bringing you to a place where you are out of resources so that you can utterly rely upon Him. And that's the beauty of being at a place where the Lord has called us as a congregation just to be prayerfully asking the Lord, what do we do now, Lord? We want to honor you. We want to bless you. We want to say yes to your call in the generation in which you've placed us. What what does that look like? And hold it with an open hand. But it's also, as I think through where the Lord has us now, and again, I couldn't have orchestrated these things when I thought through the study of Exodus, but how many of the themes in Moses' own life and his answering of God's call by faith parallel to those kinds of daily challenges we experience personally, but then the bigger challenge that we're facing even right now corporately. Moses didn't have the resources to do what it is that the Lord had called him to do, and yet the Lord uses him. We see that right here in this text. And it's often in spite of himself because the Lord has come to make a name for himself. What is it that really makes ministry effective in the body of Christ? Have you wondered that? Why is it that fruit is born over here and not over here? And why this group seems to to grow and flourish and this group doesn't, even though they may be doing the same things. What's happening there? Well, obviously the providence of the Lord. He's in control of it. The spirit of the Lord invigorating it. But there are very particular things that the people of God need to know during times of faith-stretching growth in call to mission and ministry. And we want to look at three of those this morning as we look at Exodus chapter 7. 
And the first thing that I want you to see from Exodus 7 verses 1 through 13 is that we are already equipped to answer God's call. We're already equipped for the answer of God's call. And God makes that very clear to Moses as he calls him forward into the work of ministry in Exodus chapter 7 verses 1 through 13. We're equipped already for God's call. Where do we see this? Well, would you look with me at verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 7. Notice how this passage begins. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, something of that statement should actually cause you to pause a bit as you read it. I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron is going to be for you a prophet. Now, if you can see the divine drama, almost theatrics, that our God is calling Moses and Aaron in, he's saying, in the way that I often send prophets who represent me, I'm actually sending you, Moses, in a different sort of way. Though, yes, you will be prophetic. In a very real sense, I'm actually sending you to be God when you meet Moses or when you meet Pharaoh. And Aaron's going to do the talking as if he's your prophet. It's like the whole of the throne room of heaven is showing up when Moses and Aaron show up. God and his prophet are there together, is what he's trying to say. I have equipped you, Moses, with all of my power. I've equipped you with all of my authority to such a degree that when Pharaoh meets with you, he meets with me. It's what's powerful about it actually in the Hebrew is that the ESV, as it translates it here, tries to help us a little bit to get a grasp of this when it says, see, I have made you like God. That's not actually the Hebrew. The Hebrew is, I have made you God to Pharaoh. There's no like. No like in the Hebrew. There's no simile or, or metaphorical structure that's in place. He is saying that you are going to represent for Pharaoh the very presence, authority, and power of Almighty God. Now, some of you are probably familiar with the idea of proxy or someone standing in for someone else. I have a good friend who's a CEO of a company, and he has a vice president who he uses all of the time, very wonderful man, great mediator-type gifts, who he sends often into difficult meetings to be him. In those meetings, he actually thinks he's better representing him than if he would probably be there and might actually bring greater peace to the company because he wants to utilize his gifts. But everybody knows in the company, when the vice president shows up, the CEO showed up, that he's been charged with the authority and the power to act on the behalf of, to be a proxy for the CEO, On a very real sense, God is saying that's how he has charged Moses, the kind of authority and power he's given to him, and he's going to use Aaron as the mouthpiece for this. Now, I want to ask the question, because I think you should ask the question, why would God go about the work of redemption in this way? Why would he say it this strongly? Why would he want to paint this drama and these theatrics of bringing the very throne room of God, so to speak, into the throne room of Pharaoh? Well, I want you to first think, that there's a contextual reason, a cultural contextual reason why God does this. You see, Pharaoh and Egyptians generally believed 
that those who were their pharaohs were gods. Pharaoh was a divine expression of God himself. To come and see Pharaoh was to see a God expressed in human form. If you can see what God is doing here, Yahweh, as he comes into the throne room of Pharaoh with Moses and Aaron, he's saying in a sense to Pharaoh, ah, you think you're God in human form. Oh, I see. I'm going to show you God in human form. And it's going to be the one that you don't think much of. You think you're powerful. You think you're the ruler of the world. Well, guess what? You raised a quote-unquote prince of Egypt within your household by your own daughter who's going to put you to shame in Yahweh's power when he comes into your throne room. I'm going to show you God in human form. I'm going to send to you Moses. And I love how Peter Inns puts it in his commentary. He says, it's as if God is saying, I'm going to beat Pharaoh at his own game. He thinks that he is God in human form. Well, I'm going to show you, show him what God looks like in human form when I send Moses and Aaron into his throne room. The Moses God will come to defeat the Pharaoh God in a manner that leaves no doubt that Moses' God is God. That's what this story is all about. That's the beauty of the cultural piece of what God is actually teaching and demonstrating to Pharaoh by sending Moses as God to Pharaoh. But I want you to see, secondly, that he does this by giving us a a redemptive historical point. He wants to teach us something redemptively historically. Now, those are two really big fancy words. And for some of you, you're like, he did it again. He just left me behind. I don't know what it is that he's talking about. But occasionally you'll hear us say from the pulpit or in teaching context that this is something of redemptive historical significance. And when we say that, we mean to say that the history of redemption as told in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, has multiple points along the way where it's making the same emphasis to you and to me. That fulfillments are taking place to promises and that types and pictures are being fulfilled later in the text. That throughout redemptive history, as we watch the pages of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, new things come alive to us. So, for instance, when we see that Moses is God to Pharaoh, our mind should actually go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Why should it go back to Genesis chapter 1? Because how was Adam and Eve made originally in the Garden of Eden? They were to be the image of God. To engage with Adam and Eve was to engage with a prince and a princess who had been entrusted with the very power and authority of God on the earth. Scholars like to refer to them as vice regents. They acted on the behalf of God and they acted like unto God. What did God tell Adam and Eve to do? To be fruitful and multiply. What had God just done in creation? He was fruitful and multiply. What did he tell Adam and Eve to be? To rule over all of the earth and the land animals. What does God actually do? He rules over all of the land animals, over everything that's here. What is God saying to Adam and Eve? I want you to be God to creation. I want you to be my representatives. I want you to exercise, in my, I want you to exercise power in my proxy. 
when you hear that he's doing that with Moses here, you should go back and say, oh, this is what creation was supposed to be like. He's pulling the thread of creation now all the way to redemption. And he's saying, we need a new kind of Adam. Moses is a kind of new kind of Adam. He is going to lead a new people out of a slavery to a promised land that sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden. That's what he's going to do. That's a redemptive historical piece. But of course, it doesn't stop there. Moses, of course, is just a picture of what? Well, of Jesus. He's going to be a much greater Moses as he is a much greater Adam. He's not just coming to be God to Pharaoh. He's coming as God. He is actually divine. He is greater than Moses and Adam. And when he comes, he comes to fulfill what we didn't do which is to be completely faithful to God's commands, to be fruitful. Is he fruitful by his grace in the gospel through the cross and the resurrection? You better believe it. Is he on a multiplying mission right now? Yes, it's called evangelism and discipleship, and it's going to go global to every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, as we've seen it do since the uh, first century. And is he ruling and reigning on high? Yes, right now he's at the right hand of the Father, and one day we will all be in the new heavens and the new earth when he leads us into the complete consummation of the full exodus, out of slavery into that newfound freedom. That's called redemptive historical. That, that is realizing that the Bible is one book, is telling us the fullness of the story of the fact that God has equipped his people to answer his call. He's equipped us. Do you know what he does at the end of Matthew chapter 28? <laughs> he says to his disciples, which are you, he says, all authority has been given to me. Huh, that's, that's what we're learning here, isn't it? Therefore, go in my name as my witness bearers, as my representatives, and share with them the good news of what I have done, for the world will know me through you. You see, this is what the Lord is doing even right now in mission, right? In the 21st century, right here in Middle Tennessee. As we see, even in the next service, a beautiful baptism of a young woman in our midst who's come to know the Lord and is uh, coming to the waters of baptism for the first time. What a beautiful thing. The mission of Christ is going forward. So do you see here that we're already equipped for God's call? It's not as if we've got to go get something or do something. God is making us to be able to answer his call. But I want you to see, secondly, that it doesn't just stop at equipping to answer God's call. We must also be obedient to God's command. We must be obedient to God's command. It's pretty easy, actually, to sit here on a Sunday morning and to hear, you're equipped for God's call, and just sort of go, oh, that feels so good, and then do nothing. But you're equipped not to sit still. You're equipped to go. You're equipped to obey. Don't you love the fact that God calls Moses into this work and says, I've equipped you, but you're going to have to go do it. I love he's going to do this later in the book of Deuteronomy when he says to the people of Israel, preparing them to enter into the promised land to those to those giant Canaanites, you know, who, who they were like grasshoppers uh, before, God says, don't worry, I have given you the land. Oh, now go take it. I've given you the land. It, it's yours. 
Now go take it. Be obedient to my call. I've equipped you. Rest in that. Now go. Be obedient to my command. Now, if we were going to title sections of the book of Exodus, and we could, we're actually embarking on a brand new section here in, um, in Exodus chapter 7 this morning. But if we were going to talk about the last section of Exodus, especially from like maybe chapter 4 to the end of chapter 6, we could title it the section known as the history of Moses' questioning of God. We, we could title it that because six times from Exodus 4 verse 1 to the last verse of Exodus 6 verse 30, he has six times where he questions God's call. In fact, that's right before the text that we're looking at. On several occasions, he sort of answers the call, at least momentarily. And then when things don't go according to his plan, he starts questioning again. So we've seen momentary fruit, but we've not seen enduring fruit. And what's interesting about that is it tells us that Moses hasn't really yet caught a glimpse of the majesty and the goodness and the power of God. Because what we're seeing here is Moses being completely absorbed in his unfitness for ministry. But not translating that unfitness to the equipping of God to carry out his mission through him. The confidence that should come from that. He's not really got what we might call biblical humility. Now what do I mean by that? Well, humility is notoriously difficult, isn't it, to define uh, it regularly gets caught up in sort of personality types. You know, it's always the introverted and the shy and the quiet that are so humble. Except that a lot of times the quiet and the introverted and the shy are full of pride because they're thinking about themselves and they're cowering in fear constantly. Um, and sometimes we look at those who are loud and boisterous and the life of the party, and they're full of themselves, but that may not necessarily be faithful to what's actually going on spiritually in their hearts if a ministry mindset is actually mobilizing the gifts that God has given to them to serve in the care of others. We want to be very quickly not to collapse virtue into personality issues. So sometimes it's popular to say, for instance, that humility is not thinking less of yourself. Have you heard that? But it's thinking of yourself Less. Now, that's true, um, but thinking of yourself less is not a prescription for humility. Like, I want you to just go this week and just stop thinking about yourself more and start thinking of yourself less. Go. That, it won't work, and it's not a prescription. It doesn't get you to humility. You know what? When you find, when you stumble upon the fact that you're thinking of yourself less, it means that humility has already taken hold. But it would be unlikely that you would stumble upon the assessment that you're thinking about yourself less because that would require of you to think of yourself. Does that make sense? Right? So you don't actually know if you're growing in humility. You're going to have to trust other people with that observation. So it's not a prescription to think of, think of yourself less because that's a byproduct and a fruit. You know what actually humility comes from? It comes from thinking of something else more. We might go so far as to say someone more. You see, a false humility focuses on the inadequacy of self. Isn't that what Moses has been doing? I'm uncircumcised of lips. I'm unfit for this task. Surely there's another Moses out there somewhere that you can call into this work who's better equipped than I am. This false humility focuses on inadequacy of self. And you know what it leads to? Doubt 
question and delay. If you find yourself doubting, questioning, and delaying in what you know God has called you to, it's because you're looking at yourself. It's a false humility. Okay, It's a pandering actually to an inverted pride. But true humility, you know what it does? It focuses on the adequacy and all-sufficiency of God. And then it leads to confidence and obedience. Do you imagine if you begin to focus on God's power, focus on His goodness, focus on His promises, and you recognize, wow, I am not like this God. <laughs> I do not have the resources. And then that God comes to you. Don't worry. I have made you like God unto Pharaoh. You go and do what it is I've called you to do and just watch me do my work. Then we can say, yes, sir, I'm ready to follow in joyful obedience, trusting in your power and your goodness, in true humility, I am seeing now clearly who you are. And this is why I love in this text that's before us in verse 6 and verse 10, after God had commanded Moses and Aaron to go do the work that he called them to do, listen to these verses. These are some of the sweetest verses. We had not heard these yet, much as it relates to these two characters. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded and went to Pharaoh. It tells us twice because we need to let it sink in. In verse 2, God had commanded. In verse 6, they did just as he commanded. In verse 10, they did just as he commanded. And it really tells us that now it's beginning to seep into the bones of Moses and Aaron, the heart of God's call. They've begun to get a vision as to the goodness, the righteousness, the faithfulness of this God that they can trust him to bring forth the deliverance that he has promised. I'd like to just you to do the test in your own heart because it was embarrassing this week to me to do my own test in my own heart. When you think of what you really want to be in life and really want to do in life and how you want to be remembered in life, do you ever, do you ever think these questions? Do you ever ponder these questions or someone like me forces you to like in a moment like this? When you're in those moments, I think you know, certain phrases sometimes pop into mind. I want to make a difference. I want to make an, make an impact. I, w- I, wanna, I want to see fruit born through my life. And very often what that actually has more to do than with God has to do with, with me. It has to do with, with me wanting to have a legacy <laughs> or a name or, or a... Or, or some plaque on the wall, or, or, or some benchmark by which, quote-unquote, I've arrived, and here's the mark by which that's happened. It comes under the guise of, I want to make an impact. But the subtle movement of the heart is actually more about self than about God. Here's my question to you, and it's my question that I'm asking myself. Is unadorned, faithful obedience to God's call, apart from approval or the evidence of fruit, enough for you? Is it enough for you? Unadorned, faithful, simple fidelities, not tied to some dreamy future of how your obedience is going to change the world. Is that enough? Is that okay? Can you trust the Lord with the outcome? See, that's been Moses' struggle throughout because he hasn't gotten the fruit instantly from the ministry that he's produced and it's led him more to questioning God but now we're seeing almost with a steely resolve him setting his focus towards God's call and not wavering 
He's doing just as the Lord commanded. And we're going to see it throughout the chapters to come as we unfold the plagues. So notice, we already are equipped with what it is that we need to answer God's call. But secondly, we must answer obediently God's commands. That's how his call is actually brought to fruition and fruitful. And then the third point is this, as we close. That we learn to watch for God's deliverance. Watch for God's deliverance. I told someone just a week or so ago that I feel like one of the great blessings of being a minister of the gospel is getting to sit on the front lines to watch God do things. Watch Him work. Um, to recognize that so many things are happening that no one can rob him of the glory of, that he is at work. And it's just mesmerizingly captivating to see the Lord change lives and turn people's hearts upside down, which is to say right side up, and to begin to bring from darkness into light and to grow the impact and influence of the kingdom for Christ's name. When you see that, you're just watching for God's deliverance. Do you see, Moses and Aaron didn't go there with some fancy rhetorical device. They said these words, let God's people go. Didn't take a long time to prepare that message. In fact, God gave them verbatim what to say. And then he said, when he tells you, prove it. When Pharaoh says to you, prove it with a miracle, I want you to throw the staff down and just watch. Got it? You're going to say like six words and throw a staff down. You got it? I'll do the rest. I'll do the rest. That's remarkable when you begin to just see that. Watch for God's deliverance. Just unadorned, faithful obedience, knowing God's equipped you for the call. Letting Him do the rest. And notice the beauty of how God shows forth this deliverance. I mean, He uses a staff. He uses a staff by which to accomplish it. This staff is going to become increasingly important throughout the plagues leading all the way up to the parting of the Red Sea. In the next passage, we have the turning of the Nile into blood where Moses will touch it with the staff. And it'll be, it'll be that very staff that parts the, the Red Sea. Now, God didn't have to actually use a staff, but he, but he did use a staff. And, and the question might be in your mind, why does he decide to use a staff? Why does he decide to say Moses is God unto Pharaoh? Why does he do these odd things? Well, maybe you're aware of the fact that Pharaoh himself was known for the power of his rod, what he called the rod of God, which was connected to one of the Egyptians' gods, Osiris, who was the one to oversee eternity or life after death. It was a symbol of Pharaoh's power that he had, as it were, life after death in his hand. And he could make judgments on the people who were under his subject or under his care and of on the world. It was a way in which he understood his power. So here comes Pharaoh, or here comes Moses into Pharaoh's um, throne room bearing his own staff. It's an alternate Pharaoh here that is showing up, but one who's been a shepherd in, in, in a faraway place on Mount Horeb, one who is a Hebrew of Hebrews that comes in, and he is the one who is going to show now with his staff that his God in whom he represents is more powerful than the God who stands before him displayed through Pharaoh. And then don't you notice what happens, right? It turns into a snake. He could have given him any kind of sign. Why does he give him the sign of a snake? Well, 
When you call to mind a pharaoh, if you can just right now remember the images from grade school of pharaoh when you did ancient Egyptian history, what do you see? Well, what you see is King Tut's headdress. <laughs> right? That's, actually, that's, the only, that's the only pharaoh you know, right? So, so King Tut's headdress is what you see, a gold and black um, headdress that slopes high and goes down smoothly and fans out to the left or the right. Remind you of anything? Maybe a cobra? Maybe a snake? It's exactly what it's intended to picture. Um, serpent worship was rampant throughout the Delta uh, Nile and a, a temple to actually the, the goddess of serpents was built right there in Egypt. It was the Pharaoh's desire to actually have the power and the mystique and the fear that what cobras exerted over humans, right? If one of you have ever been close enough to a cobra, hopefully in a uh, an environment of safety. If you've been close enough to one, you know that there, it sends a shiver up your spine. There is a mystique about them. There is a fear that's conjured up when you engage one. Well, that mystique and that fear is what Pharaoh wanted. He wanted to ha- be able to enact that kind of mystique and that kind of fear on the people in which he ruled. He wanted to be, as it were, unto the serpent. Phil Riken notes it this way in his commentary as he's quoting an ancient Egyptian source for what we might refer to as the Pharaoh's oath of office. Here's the Pharaoh's oath of office. O great one, O magician, O fiery snake, let there be terror of me like there's terror of thee. Let there be fear of me like there's fear of thee. Let there be awe of me like there's awe of thee. Let me rule a leader of the living. Let me be powerful, a leader of spirits. So here is Pharaoh, whose very, um, very expression um, is one of a serpentine nature, who now has Moses show up with a staff to throw it down to become a snake, as if to say, I hold the serpent In my hands, O Pharaoh, I have come to test your power. This is a duel, a duel between two opposing gods. And this is why when you see Pharaoh go ultimately to his magicians and um, his sorcerers and says to them, I want you to come, I want you to come, I want you to see this. This staff is turned into a serpent. They, they listen, this is nothing. We know snakes around here. Okay? We know snakes around here. This is the arid Egyptian desert. Um, they too, whether through a trick of, of a sleight of hand or, or whether through truly secret dark arts of demonic nature, they throw down their sticks and they actually turn into serpents. More than just one serpent. The text tells us there's a multitude of serpents. There's more than one serpent that they are able to display. Now, why would they do more than one? <laughs> to show that they're more powerful. Oh, you've, you really think you're something. You're going to throw down the staff and there's going to turn into a serpent. Well, watch this. We're going to do it with multiple staffs. Now, you can imagine at that moment, Moses and Aaron, just being Moses and Aaron's sandals, as they're there before Pharaoh, they've been told that they're to show this sign, and that's going to prove. <laughs> you know what they haven't been told? <laughs> that they're going to do the same sign. 
nowhere in the scripture do you read, oh, by the way, now Pharaoh's magicians are going to also do the same thing. Don't let that freak you out. They're not told that. So you can imagine you're feeling pretty good. You're like, okay, I dropped my stick. It's turned into a serpent. God's done what he says he's going to do. Things are going well. And then they drop their sticks to turn into serpents. You go, this wasn't in the script. This is as much a test for Moses and Aaron with regards to obedience and the question of will God actually be faithful in this? And then immediately what we're told in the text is that Aaron's staff swallows up the other serpents of the Egyptian magicians. Now this would have been particularly poignant for the Egyptians. The Egyptians had a belief that that which you swallowed, you actually gained the power and resources of. It's as if God is saying... I'm absorbing you, Egypt. I'm swallowing you. It will be a preview of actually what comes. What is the plagues? What are the ten plagues that are about to happen that we'll look at next week together? They're God swallowing Egypt. As he goes one by one and addresses their gods and he humbles them. This is a preview of what he's going to do through the plagues. Do you know the next time the word swallow shows up in the book of Exodus? is when the Red Sea collapsed on the Egyptian army. They are swallowed up into the sea. Do you see, in this moment, Aaron and Moses are witnessing the end of the Exodus while being at the very beginning of it. They are seeing God's redemption in the midst of the trial before Pharaoh's power. And what it reminds us of, doesn't it, ultimately in this Season of resurrection, it certainly reminds me of a, well, of a more important swallowing and a more important duel. You see, when, when Jesus came, ultimately he came to lay, to lay siege, a death blow to the serpent king of the world. The one who we're told in Genesis 3.15 is the seed of the serpent And he is the seed of the woman that he is going to come. And in the moment of his death, he will be wounded on the hill, we're told, in Genesis chapter 3. But he will wound the serpent seed in the head. He will nail him a crushing death blow. And when did that death blow happen to where you knew the victory of the gospel was sure? Well, we celebrated it a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember it? It's called Easter. And we're in the season of Easter. And do you know what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15? He tells us these words. Death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see this story of the swallowing of the serpents both tells us the story of Exodus, but it tells us the story of the Bible. It tells us why today, as we come actually to the Lord's Supper in just a moment or two from now, that we will literally swallow death because death has been swallowed up. It has no power over us. It is but a gateway into greater life. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, 
Would you indeed prepare our hearts in the richness of these truths from Exodus chapter 7? Would you call us in Christ to see and experience in soul the equipping for your call? And then in faithfulness to answer in obedience to your commands so that we can stand back and watch for your deliverance. Lord, would you meet us in these truths and would you embolden us to be those who answer your call just as you have equipped us unto. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.